If you have a Bible, you can be turning to Acts chapter 17. Last week, we returned to the book of Acts. Um, I had back in October, before my sabbatical, uh, returned to Acts then for a third dive into the book. I had intentions, still do, of splitting up the books of Acts as well as First and Second Samuel and just going through them in different parts through the next few years. Whenever I was in the middle of part three of Acts and I decided to part up the part. <laughs> so, in any case, uh, last week we idled on verse 16 to discuss idols. You're welcome. I was thinking of that one all week. Oh, no. Um, and it got nothing, so <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> The entire passage is about idols and idolatry, so we might hear some repeated points as we go through this passage. Yet another broad theme seems to be the idea of finders and seekers instead of finders keepers. We're going to be going through verse 34, but I would like to invite you to stand as we read verses 16 through 21 uh, for our first part, if you'd like to stand. We read, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply disturbed in his spirit to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace with those he met each day. Some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others said, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was proclaiming the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. So they took Paul and brought him to the Oropagus, where they asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you are bringing some strange notions to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their day spent their time doing nothing more than hearing and articulating new ideas. Why don't we go ahead and pray. Father, as we look at this passage, again we ask that your Spirit who inspired the writing of these words would inspire us with whatever you wish to tell us. We ask for humility, yieldedness on our part. We ask that we would receive your word, that we would do what you say, not because... You're an angry, sovereign taskmaster, but because you love us. And you know what's best for us. You made us. And you know what will cause us to thrive in our lives. So help us, Father. Help us to do your will. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This is... Certainly not normative, I would think, of Kamei School District kids. At least it wasn't for me and my friends. Who knows? Maybe the story I'm about to tell you is takes place more than it did a decade or more when I was in school. It was a few, few years after I'd been here. And between the 2013-2016 range, and I was subbing at the school... And uh, I think it was sixth grade on this given day. I brought with me two books to read during downtime. And I think it was in the morning when kids were coming in, or maybe it was after lunch. 
And, and one interesting kid comes up to me and he asks, what books do you have with you? And I had a book with me about the Essex whaling ship called Into the Heart of the Sea. And then I had a book about, I believe, John Wesley or some other old dead theologian. And uh, he asked me to explain what they were about. And, and then whenever I, we got to John Wesley, I said he was a, a pastor and, he, and a theologian and he wrote a lot about God. Now, this was years ago, but the gist of his questions followed a bit eccentrically like this. First, I believe he asked, what God? And I said, well, he was a Christian, I told him, so what most churches around here in Kamii preach, God. I didn't want to use Yahweh. I thought that would be pretty foreign sounding to him. And when I was a sixth grader, even though I went to church, I don't remember my family or my church ever using the term Yahweh regularly enough to know what it meant. After some thought or consideration, he then informed me that he preferred the Roman and Greek gods himself. And apparently he did, because then he produced a notebook of drawings, and he gave me some background on a few of them. And I was so taken back that I didn't know whether to praise his drawings or pray for him or both. <laughs> and uh, I think I just nodded my head and sounded as positive as I could without affirming his decisions. But it was so bizarre to me, and I believe I reasoned both then and now that obviously or maybe he looked to them mostly as entertainment. In fact, half or more of the comic book superheroes are unashamedly called gods in the comic books. And while this kid did strike me as someone to take almost seriously and literally, I wondered if he just enjoyed knowing what he knew about them or like I did say, he did strike me as someone who maybe meant it in the most serious and literal fashion. Maybe even to the point of believing their existence, I don't know. What I do know, and have seen, is that from a young age, we are all seekers, finders, and worshipers. Uh, I've mentioned this before, that in reflection, when I liked something, I really liked something. Uh, for this kid, apparently it was Greek and Roman gods. <laughs> For me, um, I was all in to Batman, and then I was all in to X-Men, and then I was all in to Star Wars and so forth. And, and whenever I was into those things, we're talking shows, movies, toys, drawing them, talking about them, reading about them. That's what media franchises try to do anyways, give you every medium of their franchise so you can enjoy and think about and hopefully buy more of them. But when we get older... If God doesn't fill that void, something else will. Some of us, maybe we spread so thin, so it might not be one thing, but a few things fill those voids. A few idols uh, that we couldn't do without. Whenever I'm sad and I, I need to pick me up, I do this. Or whenever I'm happy, I usually celebrate with that. Whenever I'm bored, I pick up those. The first part of our story here is this truth that... We're all seekers. And then after that, we'll, we're, we're going to look into the fact that we're made to be seekers. And then the last part is we're made to be finders. <laughs> we're all seekers, we're made to be seekers, and then we're made to be finders. First of all, again, we're all seekers. And we read that while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, we talked about this last week, that Silas and Timothy were with Paul. They stayed behind in Berea, 
And Paul is waiting for them to rejoin him. And he comes to Athens. Athens, again, was a a big, renowned city even in Paul's time. Paul's coming to Athens about five centuries after its heyday. He, Paul, was deeply disturbed in spirit to see that the city was full of idols. I also mentioned last week that a Roman contemporary of Paul, pagan, but even he satirically mused that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens, (laughs) full of idols. Uh, Verse 17, so he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace with those he met each day. Now, let us note the overtly religious connotations here. Some of you say, though, well, it's the Bible. (laughs) Of course, it's overtly religious. (laughs) But this is narrative, and there's lots of narrative that just describes everyday things, actions, and words. But Paul shows up and he sees lots of idols and gods. And then he heads to the synagogue, both with Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. So non-Jews ethically, but practicing Jews or people who were seeking Yahweh spiritually. So idols and pagan Athens, Jewish religious centers, and it shows us this, that we are all seekers. There were idols out in uh, public for Athenians to seek, to enjoy, and there were worship and to worship. There were synagogues for the Athenians to come in and seek and hear the word of the Lord. Seekers. I touched on this last week also, but this may seem foreign to us. Both obviously foreign to us in terms of time, first century versus now, but also maybe foreign to us pertaining to, pertaining to culture and location. Ancient Athens versus modern day America. C.S. Lewis would encourage people not to have chronological snobbery. So we're not any more progressed, better thinking, or more equipped than these people are. It's just a different culture. And whether people live in a pluralistic society, where any religion is allowed within reason, or they live in a theological monarchy where one religion is allowed, or predominantly a secular society where religion is ignored, diminished, and dismissed, people are still seeking. There seems to be something inborn where one cannot ignore that they're always seeking. And Paul comes face to face with the Jewish seekers to reason with them, writes Luke. Now, I think this would make a a secularist, humanist college professor laugh, because reason to them, would be the antithesis of Paul's conclusions. (laughs) Well, what's reasonable about a God that one cannot see or following in our day a bunch of old papers written by people of one culture a long time ago? Uh, I mentioned this last October. Uh, You know, I thought about not stating this again because I'm sure you would all remember. No, just kidding. Um, But back up in Berea, where Luke tells us that they were, quote, more noble-minded um, than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if these teachings were true. Uh, noble-minded had meant in this context that they were fair. They were open to reason. They were open-minded. <laughs> these are the uh, qualities of minds that receive and believe the word of God. 
Our culture seems to see it differently now. You need to be open-minded, reasonable, and fair to discredit and discount thousands of years of people who knew there was a God period, let alone the gathered witness of over thousands of years, 40 authors, vast cultures of the authors who were inspired to pen the Bible. To throw all of that out is open-minded, says our culture. (laughs) There are people educated beyond their intelligence (laughs) who just reason away things that don't need reason to weigh. Not if they're true. In Paul's day, we read about these people, some Epicurean, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others said, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was proclaiming the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. Epicureans and Stoics, I know all of you know who those are. No. But ironically, they're kind of the opposing worldviews of of monotheistic Christianity. They, they represent, and I say represent, they were real philosophies, but they're opposing worldviews of Christianity. Epicureans were, listen closely, I think you'll, you'll find out what I mean by these words, <laughs> were materialistic hedonists. <laughs> Pleasure is the greatest good in life. Now, perhaps not self-indulgent or overtly destructive pleasure, not necessarily self-gratification, but just living modestly, gaining knowledge about the world, This the simple pleasures, you only live once, do it nobly. They were also deists. They did believe in a God. They just felt like God started stuff and walked away. Stoics were basically just New Agers. <laughs> now, this is going to wreck some of your minds, but there was a New Age before the New Age took off. And uh, it's true, Stoics were pantheistic, so... You have polytheistic, a belief in many gods. But then pantheistic says God is in all. He's in everything. He's everywhere. It's kind of like the force from Star Wars. Everyone is divine and united. So one must be one with the culture and community. New age. So they ask Paul, what is this babbler trying to say? Babbler is literally one who picks up seeds. (laughs) And it's this condescending picture of one who spouts off ideas the same way a bird picks at random seeds. Now, I know all of you are older, but I had to laugh because I said, this is Twitter in the Bible. (laughs) Twitter is a social media website that only allows people to write 280 characters per post, and you just shoot out random posts. And the babbler idea is one who picks up seeds, that, that ideas of some lame brain who just parrots what he hears just to sound smart. He hears a good idea, he repeats it, So this is what some condescendingly say to Paul. And they misunderstand him. And they also call him names. (laughs) Some things never change. Anyways, others uh, said he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was proclaiming the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. It seems... Or some take Luke to say that people are misunderstanding Paul as preaching foreign gods, plural. And then it could be said that they saw, or Luke was saying that Jesus and the resurrection were the two gods he was advocating. They thought maybe the resurrection, the Greek word is actually anastasis, or, you know, we think of somebody named Anastasia. But 
some people thought that Jesus and then resurrection were two deities, what is called a dyad, or a group of deities that come in a pair. And as pluralistic and as idolatrous as the Athenians were, they were a little bit nationalistic also. Like, they don't take lightly to foreign gods being spouted off. We have enough of them. We have our own gods and goddesses. Don't come in saying we need to worship more. But that's not the only viewpoint, though. Verse 19 says, So they took Paul and brought him to the Europacus, where they asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you are bringing up some strange notions to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. So among the great stories to come out of Athens, there was a man named Socrates. He invented socks. No, just kidding. Um, I don't know if I can trust that guy. <laughs> no. And in 399 BC, likewise, he was dragged before the Athenian rulers, and he was accused of corrupting the youth of Athens by presenting strange gods. So there is this parallel, no doubt, Luke, our author, is highlighting. Unlike Paul, though, Socrates would be tried, convicted, and eventually sentenced to death. So there is a tension also likely at play that Luke is trying to present. Oh no, is this going to go down like Socrates? Um, or is it even as serious as Socrates? The wording is actually kind of vague. We don't know if, if Paul's being dragged on a formal arrest or if it was more likely some very impassioned curiosity, such as, humor us, here's a platform, give us your spill. The, the way Luke writes verse 21 might seem to suggest that. It says, now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing more than hearing and articulating new ideas. So it was a city of Kevins. That's what's, what's going on. <laughs> Either way, Paul is at the Oropagus. This comes from two words. Ares, which is the god of war. Pagos, the word for hill. Or Mars Hill, Mars being the Roman name for the god of war. And this is actually where the councils met. This is where the courts supervised morals and education. This is where religion was discussed. And so it's where Paul is being dragged to. So it would be a place that would garner a public square and a public ear because we're all seekers. Now I remember a night a few years ago, a dad who had come to the church late at night, around 9 or 10 p.m. In fact, Christy and I were getting ready for bed, and I had already been in the bed, and she was still getting ready. She came and said, hey, somebody came, drove out, and parked in front of the church. So I got out of bed, and I headed over there. Sure enough, I was asked if I could have a chat. He was a dad who, who didn't come to our church, and uh, not really Christian, but he articulated some struggles going on at home, some kids arguing with him. He just didn't know how to get a hold on it. Calvin was maybe just born, I don't remember, but I certainly didn't have that experience that would practically help him out. But what I did know was whether this dad knew it or not, he was the cause of a lot of his own problems. Half the people who knew it could testify to that. And so I said to him rather abstractly, I suppose, I said, it sounds like your situation needs redemption. Your family needs redemption. And there is a redeemer. And he kind of shrugged that off. He said he had his own religion, his own understanding of religion. And then he said, you know how it is. I talk with these issues with a few folks and I thought I would talk with you, the local pastor. I'm just hoping that somebody would say something somewhere 
that will kind of be something you hadn't thought about before, and maybe it's the one thing that helps. <laughs> I didn't repeat what I said, but I sounded like to me I may have mentioned something that would help. And it illustrates this, though. We're all seekers. We all think that there's something else we don't know about that will fix our problems. There's this just one thing hidden, unheard of, unreached for, not obtained as of yet that will solve the issues, fulfill the issues, fix it. And in fact, it seems that might be the truth. Paul opens his message to the gathered Athenians saying that we are made to be seekers. It says, then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and examined your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship as something unknown, I now proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. Nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they might, that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God intended that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, being offspring of God, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by man's skill and imagination. This first part of Paul's message, where... He's getting the general thrust across that we are made to be seekers. Could also be parted up into three points. Paul is inviting, he's instructing, and then he's exhorting. Inviting, instructing, exhorting. First he's inviting, and I, and I brought this up last week, but the King James renders Paul's opening line this way, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. And I stated then and I state now that the rendering gets the color across that Paul seems to be opening with a slap. <laughs> like, now that you're all here, I say this against you. You're too superstitious. And do I think Paul is upset at their idolatry? Of course I do. Do I think he even might think them to be too superstitious? Probably so. But the Greek word is ambiguous and vague. And it's probably purposely so. The BSB again says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And very religious could mean very devout or, indeed, too superstitious. <laughs> and in our day, the word religious seems to have di be distanced by most evangelicals. We like to pride ourselves on correcting people. No, 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 I I'm in a relationship with God. I'm not religious. And I've used the term religious negatively too. But the term religion is used positively in the Bible. James says, Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The vagueness or the ambiguity of the word, I believe is probably intentional on behalf of Paul. He's hoping to get an in with the people. And it's true, he finds them very religious. That's more than can be said for a lot of people today who write none <laughs> under the religion category on surveys. They don't either, they don't know or they don't care or might even be adamantly against 
the prospect of there being a God. So the openness on behalf of the Athens is one up from those. And I believe Paul is not opening with a backslap. He's, he's opening with an extended hand of invitation because again, he says, for as I walked around and examined your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship as something unknown, I now proclaim to you. He's finding common ground. <laughs> um, an invitation, this sort of altar to an unknown God, you know, just to cover all the grounds, make sure we didn't miss anybody, make sure we didn't offend any God out there who wants to zap us. <laughs> it's actually attested to in many ancient cities. In my study, uh, besides Athens, Olympia and the city of Pergamum were also mentioned that there were these altars in those places. So it could have been a common practice. Paul is smart, though, with his audience. He's found a common ground, or he's found a common altar, in this case, to launch into his instruction. I should say this, too. This doesn't mean Paul has affirmed their practices. Of course, he's not saying, I'm so glad you have so many idols and altars. Let me designate this unknown one for you so you can just add one more God. No, he's not going there. He's actually going to dismantle the reason for all the other altars in his instruction. Again, he starts with verse 24 here. says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. So after the invitation, then there's the slap. <laughs> like, Paul basically just said, all your temples, shrines, and idols, completely unnecessary. Why? Because the God that Paul is introducing them to is the sovereign God of the universe. You hear those designations of authority? He's the one who made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. So says Paul in a city where all the gods are fabricated gods, supposedly in charge of different domains, whether they be Ares or Mars, the god of war, or Athena, the goddess of wisdom and handicraft and warfare, and is also likely the namesake of Athens. Or Zeus, the cranky tribal leader god of all the other gods and goddesses. Paul is saying rather, I know only one god who is god over all and above all, and he didn't come out of our imagination. <laughs> and in fact, these words are at odds with both the Epicureans, again, basically deists, God made the world and walked away, leaving us to fend for ourselves, no, says Paul, he's made the world and he's the Lord of the world. He's involved. Or the Stoics, who basically believed with God being in and through all, we all share divinity and authority. Paul is saying, no, God's bigger, he's better, he's transcendent, he's Lord over all, including us. God isn't like all these temples and temp uh, idols. He wasn't made by human hands. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. We are made to be seekers. You hear the purpose in those verses? God made us, gives us life that we should inhabit the earth at specific times. Why? Verse 27 God intended that they would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. We're made to be seekers. God made us to be with him. He doesn't need us. Give you an example that might sound a little heartless to begin with, but do we really need kids? <laughs> do parents really need kids? I had some teachers in school, one for first grade and then her husband in high school. They had cats. They never had kids. I don't know if it was a medical situation, personal preference or what, but like lots of kidless couples or singles living today, Jesus never had kids. Are kids necessary? Do we need them for anything? Now, some psychologists or what have you might argue for emotional or mental needs, and of course, we do have that command to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But the reality is, is of course, we know people who go to the grave never having kids, but at the same time having lived full lives. God, being God, is not served any way, shape, form, or purpose by creating us. He wasn't lonely. He's existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity. He wasn't missing something. But he made us because he loves us and he wants to be like us. His, Or he wants us to like him. There we go. Now I know you're listening. <laughs> All right, score one. No, His intention is making us so that we might seek him. Verse 29 says, Therefore... Being offspring of God, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by man's skill and imagination. I said last week, if you were here, that our idols cannot do anything. They don't help us. They won't deliver us. They'll only fail us. All the statues around Athens, all the idols, couldn't do, plan, be, or want what God wants. God made us to seek Him out. God made us to be with Him. You know, it's flat out ludicrous for a man to approach a statue and say, I want to be with you, you fulfill me. <laughs> and idols, sinful idols being deceptive hardly ever does that, right? None of us fashion our idols believing it wants to be with us. None of us ever assign our idols believing you complete me. Rather, it's more like a slow enslavement. God didn't make us to enslave us. He made us to find and enjoy Him. Paul ends by saying we're made to be finders. Now let us come also again to the context here again, because it will help us to make sense of Paul's words. He's in Athens, as it is likely in large part one of the first times Christians have come to preach by and large to the whole Greek peninsula, so it is likely the first time Athens is hearing the gospel. Idol-filled Athens is hearing that instead of many gods, there is the God who made them and wants to be with them. Verse 30, although God overlooked the ignorance of earlier times, he now commands all people everywhere to repent. Pre-Jesus, there were a lot of cultures who maybe never knew that this God exists. Maybe. Paul says in Romans 1, though, that even creation testifies to the existence of God. And... Isn't it interesting, no matter how many cultures devoid, distant, and absent of the Judeo-Christian belief in God, there was always a God that seemed to mirror, in some way, shape, or form, the God we know, even in cultures that were polytheistic. There's always a Zeus. There's always a Jupiter. There's always a chief God. 
But what this further says about God and cultures is what it says about God and me. God's not a utilizer of ignorance, folks. He has no use for ignorance. And what this means is that if there is a sin that is wrestling me or that I'm giving way for, that I'm making space for, if there's a closet in my house where an idol sits enshrined, you and I might be good at ignoring it when it comes to our conversations and our prayer and our times with God. But God's not good at that because he, not because that he lacks the ability, but he lacks the patience for it. Being the one in authority, he lacks the unholiness for it. Today, he's commanding you to repent. I don't say that feeling super Holy Spirit inspired, I got a word from the Lord. I'm saying that knowing his command for repentance for whatever sin that you might be ignoring was a commanded issue the first day it happened. So today, he's commanding you to repent. The time for ignorance is over. The time for ignorance never was as far as we were concerned. Never was. We were born long after Christ appeared for the world. And his command for repentance is not guilt-leading. It's not punishment. It is punishment avoiding. I don't get it when we say, don't meddle with me, God. Why do we say that to our doctors? (laughs) Stop poking and prodding around, doctors. Leave me alone. I'm trying to heal you. God commands all people to repent now, verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by rising him from the dead. Jesus' resurrection means a few things for us. The glorious news is that we serve a risen Lord and Savior who has proven himself above every other idol and object around Athens that he means business. He is God. He's the real deal. None of the idols in anybody's lives can say, I've come in the flesh and blood and I've conquered the grave. Jesus' resurrection also means He's given us example of what to expect. So that at the beginning of Luke's book of Acts, when Jesus ascends, He says, I'll be back. Not like the Terminator, but He's coming back to judge. Hence, As for now, he commands everyone everywhere to repent. Why? Because we'll be judged. Might as well repent now. You know, we've heard the doctor illustration. How about the test illustration? Whenever the teacher says, go home, do your homework, know the answers to the questions, know the information, know what we're studying. Well, that sounds like homework. That sounds laborious. That sounds hard, stressful, time-consuming. Why? Because a test is coming, and I want you to grade well. So learn it now when you're tested. So with that, when you're tested, you'll prove that you've known the work. Repent. (laughs) God's not ignorant. That's not a virtue of his because it's not even a characteristic he intends to exercise. He's more interested in redemption, in forgiving and sanctifying instead of tolerating and ignoring. Verse 32 When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to mock him, but others said, we want to hear you again on this topic. This is a a common departing moment here. Because even secularists in our day and age will listen to Jesus up to a point. They'll listen to the Bible, the Christian message up to a point. But whenever you start talking about dead men rising, (laughs) 
for whatever reason, people would rather live in a negative, depressed world where darkness wins, where death consumes and lays to rest, as opposed to even have their minds opened enough to consider, what if darkness loses and life wins? What if death can be conquered? At that, Paul left the Oropagus. See, the resurrection seemed to bring Paul's message to a close. Maybe even an abrupt, interrupted close. But some joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Oropagite, a woman named Damaris, and others who were with them. You know, Luke names these people as if his readers knew who he was talking about. It's probably the case. (laughs) The point I want to emphasize is this. Just how Paul's message seemed to abruptly come to a close because we have to deal with a dead person, right? Well, I don't know if I can handle that or believe that. Don't let our message come to a close as if we've hurtled over the confrontational moment. Interesting that some in Mars Hills uh, that, that day let the calls of repentance go in their ears briefly only to go back out when they heard, wait, 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 you want me to repent? Okay, but... A dead man rising again? That's just too much. I'm leaving. Convenient. When it is the dead man rising that should empower our repentance. Because Jesus rose, you can. Because Jesus died, you don't have to. Because Jesus rose, you can rise from sin and you don't have to ignore your sin. Because Jesus did, you don't need to be ignorant You need to seek forgiveness. In Jesus' forgiveness, in His death and resurrection, you have everything you need to put that sin to death, to rise again and to walk in His power. So don't jump over the I need to repent part and use the resurrection as as an excuse to be thrown off the track to repentance. Use the resurrection as the reason you can repent. It's the only reason we can repent, and it's the best reason that you can repent. If you're saved today, but you find yourself still seeking, if you say, I'm saved, but I feel like I'm still missing something, is it confessed, unrepentant sin? Is your seeking and finding the place where you and Jesus need to meet? Is that where Jesus says, I'm not ignoring this? I'm wanting this to be repented of. After about seeking and finding, Jesus says, So I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Paul starts by saying, I see that you are religious, very religious. That could have been given to a bunch of ancient pagan uh, polytheists. But it also could be given to us who find ourselves in church and in the Bible day in and day out. And I wonder if we're very religious, but I wonder if we're overlooking something. Many of us feel like we're still seeking, we're still finding. Whenever you are supposed to be our front, our center, our everything, the God who fills up the God-shaped hole in our heart and lives. 
It's not because we don't know enough. It's not because maybe we haven't been convinced or persuaded enough. I wonder if it's this, this, this unrepented sin in our lives. I wonder if there's something in our lives where you're saying, I'm, I'm not ignoring this. You're still doing it, and I still have a problem with it. And I wonder if you're asking us to repent. And if that's the case, I pray that today would be a day of repentance. There never was a time of ignorance as far as these sins were concerned. And Father, I hope that the invitation warms the heart that we have nothing to be afraid of whenever we seek your forgiveness. You're not waiting to spank us or excommunicate us or kick us out of your kingdom. But everybody who asks will receive. Father, the resurrection is the promise of that, that you have died for our sins, past, present, future. You have rose again. That you've given us your Holy Spirit, that we don't have to be enslaved by these idols and sins, but instead we can seek your forgiveness, find it and move on and be freed from it. Holy Spirit, we ask for not just the conviction, but also the change to come in our lives, that we would rise again, that we would walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Father, we love you. We thank you. And Father, as we think about the potluck coming up for us, we ask that you would bless this food to our bodies, bless the hands that are preparing it, bless our conversation around the table. Thank you for this time together. And we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.